Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. The gentle giant known as the manatee is in a death spiral. Hundreds upon hundreds of these slow-moving sea creatures have died in a rapid pace since 2021. Of the record-shattering 1,101 manatee deaths last year in Florida, 359 of them were in Brevard. Their main food source is disappearing, and in turn, they are consuming a dangerous alternative. This algae that the manatees were eating actually has been known to kill humans who have eaten this type of algae. Their only hope is for the health of the water to improve so their food source returns. Hopefully we'll see the water clear up, but if, if we don't get that period of clear water, it is concerning. Also in this issue, imagine a hurricane is coming. How do the animals at Zoo Miami get protected? Hey, Ron McGill here from Zoo Miami. Coming up, I'm gonna tell you how Zoo Miami gets ready for the hurricane season. Meteorologist Brent Cameron with a one-on-one -on -one exclusive interview with the director of Zoo Miami, Ron McGill. Plus, a field fact. What phenomena do we see more of each year? Hurricanes or earthquakes? All that, coming up. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the storm station. Seven News. We begin with our lumbering friends, the manatees. They kind of resemble a walrus. Unlike those majestic beasts that can actually move on land, manatees are mammals that can live in both salt water and fresh water. They are part of the elephant family. They tend to make their homes in quiet areas like bays, slow-moving rivers, and such. They eat mostly plants and help keep waterways clear. Since they are slow movers and tend to hover near the surface, manatees are always in danger of getting struck by careless boaters. But now, they face an even greater threat. WSBN's Kevin Ozebeck paints the picture. It looks like endless still water until you reach the pockets of mangroves and see a family of dolphins breach. Is he giving us a show? <laughs> At first glance, the Indian River Lagoon looks pristine. <laughs> but in reality, this is an ecosystem in collapse. So many manatees died here last year, this island became a graveyard. The lagoon has basically become a dead zone. The Indian River Lagoon stretches more than 150 miles all the way from Palm Beach to Volusia County. This northern section in and around Brevard County has biologists especially worried. Of the record-shattering 1,101 manatee deaths last year in Florida, 359 of them were in Brevard. We knew this was coming. The prognosis is not good for the manatee. From his Fort Pierce lab, Florida Atlantic University biologist Dr. Brian LaPointe is sounding the alarm. The lagoon is no longer functioning. His field team took us out on the water to show us why. As we peek beneath the surface, there's near zero visibility, even though we're in water just two feet deep. 
Microalgae is blooming so prolifically it has clouded the water. Hopefully we'll see the water clear up, but if, if we don't get that period of clear water, it is concerning what could happen. Murky water means even more of the manatee's main food source, seagrass, will die off. As the seagrass vanishes, so do the manatees. And that's just because they don't have enough food to survive through the winter months. Even more startling were once there were meadows of seagrass. Dr. LaPointe is at times finding colonies of toxic algae like this. And it's what some manatees have turned to for food. Well, this algae that the manatees were eating actually has been known to kill humans who have eaten this type of algae. This is still very much a work in progress, looking at the toxins and how it's affecting the manatees. But during our trip, the water was so dark, even seaweed wasn't thriving. That means many of the lagoon's manatees are starving to death. It is not only travesty that we've lost hundreds of manatees, but we're likely to have that continued. And this this is about 20% of the East Coast population has been lost over the last year, and it's not done yet. So what is throwing the Indian River Lagoon so out of whack? Biologists believe the main culprit is human waste from septic tank runoff. And scientists warn the ecological disaster here could play out in our backyard too if we do not better protect our waterways. Manatees are like, if you will, the canary in the coal mine. They're telling us there's a disaster that's well underway, and it's also letting us know that this can happen in other places, so including Biscayne Bay. So it's really a forewarning of what could happen in your community there. With their food now in such short supply, state biologists have taken the drastic step of feeding lettuce to manatees in the lagoon. It may get them through this winter, but experts warn it's not a long-term fix to keep this Florida icon from becoming a dying breed. Kevin Ozebeck, 7 News. Thank you, Kevin. When we return... Hello, my name is Kristen Frizzell and I'm with the Miami Seaquarium. I'm one of the wildlife keepers here and coming up next, we're going to talk to you about manatees. The best app from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app. Get the latest forecast models. My Seven weather blog. And of course, Seven's cone on your phone. It's yours free from the Storm Station, Seven News. Joining us now is wildlife keeper Kristen Frizzell. Thank you for joining us, Kristen. Thank you for having me, Phil. I'm very excited to be here and talk a little bit more with you about one of my favorite animals, the manatees. Perfect. Um, can you tell us what the current conditions are for the South Florida manatees? Absolutely. So the South Florida manatees, they are currently facing a larger threat this year due to an unusual mortality event. Now, a little while ago, the Florida manatee was listed as a threatened species. Their populations did increase, so they were um, downgraded. However, with this unusual mortality event going on, they are potentially at risk for going back onto that threatened list again. And, and what do you think has led to this die-off? So the unusual mortality event, what's happening and what we're starting to see is that there is a massive depletion of their natural food source, which is seagrass. 
So Florida Fish and Wildlife has been partnering up with the Manatee Rescue Program in order to dive deeper and find out what's really going on. And a lot of their research is showing that due to pollutants and runoff, it is polluting the water and causing large algal blooms. Now with those algal blooms, it is preventing the sunlight from penetrating that seagrass um, in order for it to grow and thrive. So that's why we think that the seagrass is kind of suffering uh, in that regard. And that is why the manatees are now falling victim to this unusual mortality event. So Florida Fish and Wildlife is um, going out and doing their surveys. They're seeing where the manatees are. They're taking a look at the environment. They're finding that there's, again, that large depletion, a lot of dead seagrass. And they're also finding that the manatees are severely emaciated. So they're very thin. Um, upon observations, you can typically see if a manatee is underweight, um, as you can usually see some of their uh, rib cage lining. Um, and they're very thin. Their head is shaped more like a peanut. Uh, so that is what FWC is looking for as they are going out and doing these observations and looking for those manatees that are falling victim to the unusual mortality event. So when you get a report of an ailing animal, how does this aquarium then jump into action? So we do have partnerships with Florida Fish and Wildlife as well as the Manatee Rescue Program. If we do get any calls regarding a manatee that may be in distress or may be injured, we do reach out to Florida Fish and Wildlife. Florida Fish and Wildlife will then send someone to go survey the scene essentially. And upon observations, they will look at if the manatee is truly in distress, if they need to do a rescue mission, they'll go ahead and coordinate and plan the appropriate individuals to get that taken care of. And then upon the rescue, they're already coordinating with the facilities in order to determine where they're going to go. Um, so everything is based off of regions as well as availability. And then they do the transport to the facility in which they are then rehabil rehabilitated. And once they are all cleared uh, in their rehab program, then they are ready for the release. Now, how long on average does it take uh, to heal a manatee? It certainly depends on the injury. Sometimes it can take anywhere from about a month to years. Uh, so it certainly just kind of depends on what the needs are for the animal, uh, whether it's a boat injury, an entanglement, uh, gastrointestinal issues, the unusual mortality event where they're coming in emaciated if they just need to bulk up. So depending on those needs will kind of depend upon a treatment plan and getting them healed and ready to be re-released. Now, do they do well once they're back in our South Florida waters? Absolutely. So we do have a very successful um, release program. And one of the ways that we kind of monitor it is again, partnering with the Manatee Rescue Program, as well as Florida Fish and Wildlife. Every intake of a manatee that we do, as well as a release, we take extremely detailed records of their uh, visual identification. So if the manatee has any markings, if they have any identifiers, we take pictures of those. So they go into a large database. So as Florida Fish and Wildlife is out in the field, 
they can actually pull up those records to identify individual manatees so we can see and confirm that, you know, manatees that we've released in the past that, you know, they are thriving and doing well. And with the manatee rescue program, we can also provide something called a satellite tracking belt. It goes around the manatee's paddle and it's designed to not be intrusive in any way, shape or form. So it does eventually fall off of the manatee, but as they're swimming around, it'll ping to the satellite and update the researchers on the manatee's location. So that has been extremely helpful in regards to the unusual mortality event that we are seeing this year because we've been able to locate more of a specific location in order to have individuals go out and survey the scene and confirm if there is a depletion of that seagrass. Now with the uh, present mortality- so there certainly are ways for us to- Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, I was just gonna say, there certainly are ways for us to monitor and ensure that those individuals were released are doing well and thriving. Uh, with the uh, present mortality event, do you agree with the plan of, um, setting up feeding stations in the wild to feed the animals? Yes, so Florida Fish and Wildlife, um, again, they've done a lot of research in the field of uh, Florida manatees and how they're going about this is very strategic and very important. So they are adding a lot of emphasis to uh, locals and individuals to please, please, please leave this up to them in order to take the lead because they certainly don't want to encourage everyone to go out and provide lettuce for the manatees and start feeding the manatees because that's certainly not the goal and not the intentions of this project. We do want to leave it to the specialists as they are strategically planning these sites in which they're building to provide that supplemental lettuce until uh, we can kind of get a better grasp at the larger scale problem for those pollutants entering the water. And if there's another way that we can kind of approach it and help in mm -hmm. that regard. So with the Florida manatees being an animal that is highly protected, and again, they are at risk for being a threatened species, we do want to make sure that we are helping them out in any way that we can. So this program is certainly unique and it's a great way to aid in that helping hand, but do it appropriately where they're not going to become reliant on people or humans in any way, shape or form. Kristen, going forward now in the summer months, will their situation improve or worsen? It's hard to say. I certainly hope it improves, especially with all the work that we're doing. We are starting to bring attention and awareness to using fertilizers and making sure that, you know, any chance we can promote conservation and for anybody that's farming or gardening locally to help encourage them to reduce their use of chemicals as well, because every little bit I certainly believe, I certainly believe helps. So that's certainly all we can do at this point. So we'll continue to keep aiding those manatees. We'll keep aiding and bringing awareness and hopefully we'll start to see an increase in their food and we'll see an increase in those manatees being able to go back to eating their natural seagrass. Perfect. We're keeping all of our fingers crossed. Thank you very much to the Sequarium Wildlife Keeper, uh, Kristen Frizzell. Thank you for joining us today. It was wonderful. Thank you, Phil. Severe weather can strike any time. And when it does, Seven's got you covered. 24-7. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We, we, we.
are the Storm Station 7 News. Welcome back. So many animals and so many worries when a hurricane threatens South Florida. How do we keep them all safe? Here's Brent Cameron with our feature presentation. I'm meteorologist Brent Cameron and another hurricane season is here, South Florida. Just dealing with hurricane plans for you and your family can be a handful. So just imagine what it's like having to prepare an entire zoo. And here to tell us what that's like, Ron McGill, a wildlife expert, award-winning photographer, educator, TV radio star, and communication director for Zoo Miami. Ron, did I leave anything out? No, I pretty much got it all, Brent. Thanks. And of course, one of the most recognizable personalities. I know you're going to be modest about it, Ron, but you've been here in the community for decades. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, it just tells me that I'm old, Brent. That's all. 42 years <laughs> in this place. I'm old. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about Zoo Miami being, as I understand now, the fifth largest zoo. Correct. And uh, something on the order of what, 3,000 animals? Yeah, we have a little over 3,000 animals. You know, the, the footprint of the zoo is actually 740 acres, but we've only developed about 330 because a lot of the property around the zoo is uh, protected rock pineland, which is a nice buffer to have around the whole park. How can you possibly approach, it's got to be overwhelming, a hurricane season in a place like Miami, where, of course, tropical weather happens uh, quite frequently? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know that better than most. But the, the bottom line is it's been a work in progress. It's something we learned uh, kind of in a crash course with Hurricane Andrew. But the bottom line is each each time a new storm comes through, we have learned new things. Uh, we've got a routine. As soon as hurricane season hits, we know certain supplies that have to be ordered. Uh, we have to top off all the uh, supply tanks that we have here. We have to check all our generators. Uh, everything's done in that sense. And then we, we listen to you guys. You know, when you guys are saying, OK, we've got a hurricane watch that turns into a warning for every one of those steps. It's a different layer for us as far as our preparations go. Once we get into the warning stage, that's when we start really packing things up and packing animals up. Uh, we try to avoid doing that uh, at all costs, basically, because a lot of times moving the animals is actually more stressful than some of them going through what the storm can present. So we have to take that and weigh that uh, very carefully before we do that. One of the things we do not do, and I get asked this all the time is, you know, do you evacuate the animals? Uh, mm -hmm. We don't do that for a couple of reasons, Brent. First of all, moving the animals, again, like I said, is so stressful to the animal that sometimes you can do more damage to the animal during the move than an actual storm would do to it. But more importantly, as you well know, you may be evacuating an animal into a zone and then all of a sudden the storm takes a sudden turn and goes right to the place you're evacuating the animal to. So here in Florida, we really keep our, you know, our animals here at the zoo. We're very fortunate. We're on one of the highest pieces of property here in Miami-Dade County. So flooding is not as much a concern as it would be on the coastal areas. And you, you said several times, we, that involves your staff that I assume has to be very well in tune about the contingency plans, right? Absolutely. You know, again, this is something that we go through from the beginning of the year. Uh, it's almost like a template now. We've been through so many storms, whether it be Irma, whether it be Wilma, all those storms that we've gone through. Uh, each one of those storms has finely tuned our procedures and our programs that we do here. So, you know, one of the things that we learned is, first of all, we make sure all of our staff has their own home taken care of. Uh, and that's ahead of time. We don't wait for a hurricane watch or even, you know, the first Atlantic storm to show up. We tell people as soon as hurricane season starts, June 1st, boom, you better have all your supplies done because you have a responsibility, I know, to your home and to your family, but you also have a responsibility here to the zoo, especially to these animals that depend on us for their survival. So, uh, you know, those things are taken care of and the staff 
will then dedicate itself here at the zoo when it comes to those last minute moves or preparations that we have to do. I'm sure some of the staff members have to stay by the animals should there be an emergency, right? Well, believe it or not, you know, we do have some staff that will stay here throughout uh, the, the time, but most of the staff actually stays here, believe it or not, just because they have to evacuate their own homes. Some of our staff li lives in a, you know, in, a, in a flood zone, lives in an area that is much more uh, susceptible to hurricane flooding and damage. So they come here because we have structures at the zoo that are built like basically you know fortresses they're, they're they're bunkers so to speak so they come here to protect themselves and of course that serves double duty and that they can also be here for things that happen at the zoo we do have 24 hour seven day security that is here the rangers are taught to 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 be here and take care of things um, just like it was in hurricane andrew you know right after that storm passed through one of the first things that's done is there's a certain team that is assigned to go out into the park and a buddy system to check to make sure that there are no dangerous animals that may have gotten out because you know you have the not only the potential of a, a storm destroying people's homes and knocking out electricity water things like that but if we have to add to that you know a, a lion tiger or bear that's now walking around in miami-dade county scared and injured that really complicates the problem there are stories i remember after hurricane andrew i believe it was more with the parrot jungle if i'm if i'm or maybe the monkey jungle uh, where there was more of an escape effort yeah. that took place yeah you know we did have birds escape uh, our aviary was totally destroyed in that that storm. You know, we had, you know, gosh, I think it was like three to 400 birds in it at the time. Unfortunately, we had our greatest mortality in that exhibit. Uh, about 100 birds died because the whole aviary collapsed. About 200 birds escaped and they they were flying free for a while. But I will tell you that we were able to actually lure them back with food and secure almost all the birds that escaped. There's a couple of exceptions. We had a, an Argus pheasant that was actually brought to us by a state trooper who had it walking down the Florida Turnpike. So he brought <laughs> that to us. But I want to dispel a, a very common urban myth. And that is that people see all these parrots flying around and they go, oh, those are the birds that got away from the zoo during the hurricane. For the record, we did not lose a single parrot during the hurricane. All those parrots that we see here flying in South Florida now are parrots that escaped from private owners or from different types of uh, pet shops or whatever, but none of those parrots escaped from the zoo. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because even to this day, I do hear exactly what you said. Now you mentioned the fortress, like uh, kind of a bunker facility now, obviously looking back, back to Andrew, back to maybe even Wilma, you didn't have those structures in place then. You weren't able to be as fortunate at that point. Can you tell us how you've progressed over the years? Sure. Well, first of all, the building codes have changed tremendously, and that is to our benefit. I know a lot of people complain about it because it adds a tremendous expense when you're rebuilding, but the bottom line is for our own safety. So when we have built exhibits and habitats now uh, moving forward from Hurricane Andrew, we've met that or exceeded that building code. For instance, our flamingos, you know, one of the, the famous photographs of that uh, Hurricane Andrew time was the flamingos in the bathroom. because we And you took that picture, by the way. I did take that photograph. Yeah. You know, we use we use the bathrooms as a bunker for flamingos because it was perfect. First of all, there's no windows in the bathroom. Second of all, you have the tile floor, so it's easy to clean. And trust me, flamingos make a mess. Um, and thirdly, as gross as this may sound to some people, you know, it was a source of fresh water in the toilets. We just cleaned the toilets really well, had them filled up with water. So the flamingos had their water. That's, in fact, what saved their lives. 
Now with the new Flamingo exhibit that we built a few years back as part of our new uh, entry plaza, they have a specifically built room adjacent to the Flamingo exhibit that they could get herded into if there is such a thing as a hurricane warning. Uh, and that's the only time we would put them in there. Uh, again, because it can be stressful to keep these animals enclosed in those types of rooms for any extended piece of time. The bottom line is, now these exhibits have these built-in bunkers and fortresses uh, built into the exhibits so these animals can be easily uh, transferred to those areas should the time uh, necessitate it. Ron, does it help that a lot of these animals are at least at times available to be out in the, in, in the open regularly as they experience some of the summer storms that we have here in Miami? Does it help them kind of prepare for anything that gets worse? Well, I think so. You know, there are times, and you know this again as, as well as anybody, we have some afternoon thunderstorms here that people would swear were worse than some of the hurricanes we went through. <laughs> they can be brutal. Um, but these animals, you know, they have an instinct, Brent. There's an instinct. There's an old there's, there's a saying that I, I came up with during Hurricane Inouye. I said, I will never underestimate um, the power of nature to destroy, which that hurricane so well exemplified. But on the same side, I will never underestimate the ability and its instinct to survive. We see these animals that have a way to hunker down. They seem to know how to avoid the worst of a storm, how to get through a storm. Another thing that I noticed, Brent, and, and I'll say this from my own, this is not something I heard from somebody else. I saw it myself. I'll never forget that morning right before Hurricane Andrew. Uh, for those of you who are here during that time, you remember it was, you know, nice puffy white clouds. It was a breezy day, blue skies. It was gorgeous. You would never think that 12 hours down the line, we have this massive storm coming to us. But right. the bottom line is, I remember walking out in the zoo that day, and, and on any other summer day in August, you walk out here in the zoo, and you see a plethora of native bird life, blue jays, mockingbirds, you know, uh, herons, all kinds of stuff flying around. I walked out there that morning, and it was a gorgeous day, and yet I couldn't see one of those native animals anywhere. Wow. And I'm telling you, I just feel that these animals have a way of sensing when it's time to get out of Dodge or when it's time to, to hunker down. And I use those animals now as my barometer. In the past, you know, whenever we've had a really serious storm come through or the right. threat of one, I go out there and I say, are the birds here? When I see the birds there, I say, okay, it may be coming, but it's not gonna be that bad. But I remember when Wilma came, the same thing. These animals kind of like evacuated. And sure enough, Wilma hit us pretty hard here. So I think there's a lot we can learn from animals if we take the time to truly watch them. Ron, I have a quote from you from years ago. This is you saying animals face the same challenges that we as people do, whether it be uh, health or whether it be injury, end quote. Uh, now, how might we take that into consideration in terms of what species might be the most vulnerable in a tropical situation? If you're looking at a, a storm in general, flooding, as you know, is such a huge threat with these storms. The storm surge can be a, a major issue. We're fortunate here at Zoo Miami that we're up on a pine rock uh, ridge that is fairly high, relatively speaking. So that's not a big issue with us. But flying debris is a huge issue. And for that, you know, birds tend to be the most susceptible. They're the most frail, of course, and most susceptible to the wind, even though I'm always amazed to watch the way they can hunker down in these storms. Animals that are contained in small areas sometimes can become so alarmed by flying debris that they do injury to themselves. They'll run into a fence, they'll run into a door, uh, they can break their necks, they can you know, break their legs. And this is just out of a panic situation because of you know, the immense power that a storm can bring on. So what we do with some of our animals, we try uh, with a lot of our hoofstock, we keep them out in wide open areas. Our job is just to make sure we've tried to tie down anything that can fly, any shovel, any wheelbarrow, any type of object that could become a projectile 
projectile. That's where our work is to make sure that is secure so it doesn't become that to these animals. And generally speaking, we have found you know, that those animals will learn to put their backs to the wind. Anybody who has horses, for instance, you know, even in a bad thunderstorm, you'll notice horses instinctively turn their butts to the wind. Look at a horse in a rainstorm, you'll see they're all facing the same way with their butts to the wind. Animals have instincts to save themselves from serious injury. And getting back to sort of the timeline of, of, for some of these things, you know, at what point is it necessary for you at uh, Zoo Miami to start putting things into motion? As soon as there's a hurricane watch, um, we are, we're, we're doing serious stuff, like really packing things up, taking down all the tarps. It's a tremendous amount of manual labor. Um, what we do is we, at the beginning of hurricane season, we are trimming all the trees. We're checking all of our chainsaws. We're checking all of our generators. We're checking all of our gas tanks. Uh, we're making sure we're up to stock on all of our meds in the veterinary hospital. All those things are done June 1st. That's done. Um, we, we, we do that assuming there is going to be a hurricane coming. The rest is basically condensed into to two days worth of work, which is basically what our hurricane watch is giving us. You know, that's the fortunate thing. We talk about these hurricanes as such massive destructive storms, but thank goodness there is a certain amount of predictability. We have some, some you know, uh, heads up that we, right. we can see. It's not like a tornado or an earthquake. Um, so we, we've learned very well by, by watching you guys. You know, we depend, you're our barometer. You're telling us what's happening. When you put out a watch, okay, we've got to start, uh, you know, taking more things down. When you put out a warning, then we start have to really locking up animals and moving animals and secure them properly. Does the staff conduct drills? We have regular drills for escaped animals, um, you know, where we don't have an animal itself escape, but we dress someone up like an antelope or something. And we say, okay, he's escaped. And we go through the drill with the, you know, the veterinary team, animal health team, the capture team, that's all done. So those drills are done regularly for, you know, what we call non-dangerous animals or we consider dangerous animals. Those drills are held on a regular basis. And that's just part of our accreditation. We have to do that to maintain our accreditation to do those drills, whether it be, you know, an escaped venomous snake or escaped tiger, escaped gorilla, all those drills are run specifically for those types of animals. So we're ready. God forbid there is a storm that compromises and includes and an animal can get out. We are ready in that respect. As far as, you know, taking stuff down, we don't really need a drill for that. What we have is a checklist. We have a checklist that we go through. Okay, we've taken the tarp down. We put the wheelbarrows away. We've stocked the hay barn. We've stocked the, the medicine cabinet. We've done that thing. We, you know, one of the things we learned very quickly, Brent, and this is a secret that I would give out to other zoos, is that before hurricane season, make an arrangement with a refrigerated truck company. And don't make an arrangement with a refrigeration truck company that's in your neighborhood. Make one with at least two counties out. Make that reservation. It's dollars well spent. What we found out, I was fortunate because of you guys in the media. When I told the story after Hurricane Andrew, we had nothing here. Our refrigerator freezer was taken out. No electricity. Nothing. Uh, we had a trucker who was listening to us uh, on the air. And he had two refrigerator trucks brought down here from Palm Beach. And those were the two most important life-saving pieces of equipment we had at the zoo for those weeks following Hurricane Andrew. Not only were we able to maintain food and ice and water in those, in those, uh, those refrigeration trucks, but it was a, a, a place of respite for the staff itself. Because as you remember, August, it's miserable, it's humid, right. it's rainy, it's hot. Um, that became like an office for us. And I could never say thank you enough to that trucking company that gratis, they didn't even charge us. They said, no, we want you to have this to help you out. Make those arrangements ahead of time, because if you try to do so afterwards, everybody's going to have those things rented out. That is the greatest deposit money you could put down, because trust me, it will be a lifesaver. God forbid you lose your power, you lose everything, and you need to live. 
obviously words of wisdom from having been through a lot of that already in the years past. Ron, fantastic advice and uh, and information. I so, sure appreciate it. Any final words for our podcast listeners? Well, this is what I tell you is that I remember being here at Hurricane Andrew. I was 32 years old at the time. And I can tell you that I never took hurricanes very seriously. We had a hurricane. I think the one I experienced that was a Hurricane David, which I said, my God, this is a hurricane. Please give me a break. You know, these people are all exaggerating. And when Hurricane Andrew, you know, we go through so much work, Brent, preparing for these storms that we do all this work. And then all of a sudden, more often than not, thank God, the storm goes a different direction or it doesn't seem to be as bad as people anticipate it being. And I, being a young, naive, stupid male, said to myself, God, you know what? After all this work, this storm better come. I'm tired of doing all this work for nothing. And I remember there was a a senior citizen volunteer we had here. He looked at me and he said, young man, be careful what you wish for. These storms are more powerful than you could ever imagine. Don't be stupid like I was. Hurricanes are one of the most amazing, powerful, destructive weather elements in our planet. And having experienced hurricane Andrew firsthand it was like god came through here with a 25 mile wide weed whacker and leveled this place never ever underestimate the power of these storms all right many thanks to ron mcgill of zoo miami for talking with us today this has been meteorologist frank cameron hoping you support the wildlife the animals the zoo and stay safe this hurricane season thanks ron thank you brent and now a bill fact which do we see more of each year earthquakes or hurricanes? Well, earthquakes outnumber hurricanes. According to NASA, approximately 85 hurricanes, typhoons, and tropical cyclones occur worldwide each year. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, there are 500,000 detectable earthquakes in the world each year, with 100,000 strong enough to be felt and 100 of them strong enough to cause damage. In our next issue, it has been a wet few weeks with potential storm number one impacting South Florida. Add to that, we are in the middle of rainy season. Meteorologist Erica Delgado has the story. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion, please send us an email at wxpodcast at wsvn.com. We'll see you next week. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane. With technical support by Stephen Sejas. Thank you for listening to Weather or Not.